You are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is, great, there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Join me as we pray. God, we are grateful for your righteousness. We are grateful for the grace that you extend to us. In this world that is dark and bleak, we are in desperate need of your peace, of your grace, of your mercy, God. We love you, Lord. We embrace you today as the Prince of Peace. And God, I pray over Pastor Aaron, your servant, as he delivers this word today, God, that you would um, allow your spirit's anointing to be on it, that it would move forward into our hearts and our minds and shift our hearts to be more like you, to think more like you and love more like you, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. I, um, I'm so filled up today. I mean, how can you not, after that time of worship, hearing you guys sing the testimony from Kari and then being able to celebrate Yemi? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just full. Anybody else full? Just Anybody got room for the word? Anybody got room for the word? We got a, big, we got a, we got a hard text to go through today, so... Um, buckle up. But I, we're, we're in a series called The Coming of God, an Advent series, and I want to express appreciation to Jensen, who leads our student ministry, for kicking us off in this series, and then Amy for sharing last week just vulnerably her own story of infertility, um, and she's shared about uh, Mary and the new birth. And uh, today I want to talk about Christ and the new Adam. Christ and the new Adam. But before we get into that text, I just want to zoom out 
um, and just talk a minute about this Advent season that we are in. Most of us know the season of Advent that leads up to Christmas because of Advent calendars or the Advent wreath and the four candles of, you know, peace, joy, love, and hope. And these are four biblical themes that we've often talked about in series past. Um, But the interesting thing is that those themes are actually more of a recent phenomenon of studying them during this Advent season. For about a thousand years of church history, specifically in the medieval times from about 500 to 1500 AD, the Advent themes were the four last things. The four last things. There's an image of the four last things here. And the four last things are this, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, in that order. So, so how's that for some relaxing themes to get you into the holiday spirit, right? Like, it's like, what, what's your church talking about this Advent? It's like, well, last week we talked about death. This week we're talking about judgment. Next week we're talking about heaven. And then we're going to finish it off by talking about hell. How's that, right? That's not really the recipe to pack out the churches for the holiday season. But talking about God's judgment is, is not popular today. It, it's not trending particularly in well-educated cities like D.C., the last thing we want to be seen is as judgmental. Instead, we're taught to emphasize the biblical themes of inclusivity and love. And there's real fear of being canceled when we talk about themes like God's judgment, about eternal separation from God, or about there being consequences for sin. We, we don't want to stir the pot at the workplace or in our social circle, so to speak. And this fear of what other people think of us, I think has also crept uh, into the church, but also among us pastors. There's many pastors today that are fearful of of teaching huge portions of scripture. And, And you don't have to look far to find that the theme of God's divine judgment is a prominent theme in scripture. Just, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and now I'm in uh, Revelation 1 for the New, for the New Testament reading. Uh, yesterday's reading talks about Jesus holding the keys of death and the grave. And then the Old Testament reading was from, from Joel 2, uh, which says, The day of the Lord is great, and it is dreadful. Who can endure it? I mean, that was just in yesterday's Bible reading. Paul talks about there coming a time in the church when people will no longer uh, put up with sound doctrine, meaning the straight teaching, uh, historic and biblical teaching of scripture, and instead will surround themselves with teachers who tell them what their itching ears wanna hear. And we're living in that day now. There's actually a lot of data today that shows that people are more influenced by their politics than they are by the word of God. And this, this is, I mean, I could go deeply into that. That's a consensus now, is that most Christians in America are more influenced by their political po- platform than the word of God. And so what happens is this leads to a lot of false teaching that happens not only online, but it happens in churches today. And so we have to be discerning. And even in this Advent season, we have to be discerning to say, okay, what does is, what, what is God intend for us to study as we prepare for the coming of Christ? And honestly, it's much more comfortable to talk about the first coming of Christ than the second coming of Christ. Because we know that Jesus came first as Savior, but he's coming back, back again as judge, holding keys to death and the grave. This theme of God's judgment 
is not only in the Advent tradition, it's not only throughout Scripture, it's also in the historic creeds of the church, which have been embraced for about 1,700 years. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene's Creed, you may remember in them it says that Jesus uh, is coming back to judge the living and the dead. The, the reality that Jesus is coming back as judge is actually really good news, that God will deal with those who wreak havoc on the lives of others without consequences. The good news is that there will be consequences. There will be consequences. And if we can sort of get past our progressive disposition here in D.C. that honestly so often has such a watered-down view of love that we lose the story of God We lose the the deeper meaning of God's love, which includes his judgment. The coming of God is that Jesus is coming back to do battle with Satan. Jesus is coming to judge Satan in all his ways. And and it's, it's good news. It's actually a loving thing because it means that when God sees evil and God sees injustice, which is one of the greatest barriers to people uh, believing in faith. I actually asked ChatGPT last night. I said, what are the 10 top reasons people don't embrace the Christian faith? Number one was because of evil and suffering in the world, right? But, but the judgment of God says that it will be addressed. Those who have wronged you, those who have traumatized you, those who have raped you, those who, of you who have been unjustly fired or treated, the racism you've experienced, the oppression you've experienced, the persecution, it will be addressed. And this is the confidence. This is the biblical hope that you can have that allows you to live counterculturally from this world. Because when you have the, the hope and the understanding and the confidence that that person who hurts you will have to stand before God one day, it allows you to offer forgiveness to them, even if that means you're not in a relationship with them anymore because of healthy boundaries. It means that you can love your enemy. That's the deeper meaning of the coming of God. That's the message of Advent. And so this is a time of year where we take sin and evil seriously. And that's why the church for a thousand years focused on the four last things during these four weeks of Advent. Death, because it teaches us to prepare to face our inevitable death, which we prefer to avoid. It teaches us to reflect on judgment because we must come to learn that Jesus saves us from judgment, but he doesn't save us without judgment. Because the gospel message is that he was judged for us. It it helps us reflect on heaven, this promise of eternal life. Because our temptation is to put our confidence in the kingdoms of this world rather than in his kingdom that has no end. It helps us reflect on the reality of hell, that there are real and eternal consequences for rejecting and obeying God. And what's interesting is that it is no accident that hell is the last of these four subjects in the Advent calendar, because it is the closest to the birth of Jesus. It's closest to the birth of Jesus. And this season in Advent reminds us that Jesus has come to do battle with Satan, the devil, the accuser, the father of lies. The devil has come to rob, kill, and destroy, and Jesus has the exact opposite agenda. He has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Somebody say amen. And so Advent is a time 
of year that we remember that sin and death is doomed, that Satan is doomed. Despite all appearances to the contrary, he doesn't win. He doesn't have the last word. And so Advent reminds us that we can live without fear. And Amy mentioned this last week. This is actually the beginning of the Christian year, right? Like the, the Christian calendar begins actually here in December at Advent. And so we're starting this, this calendar year, this Christian calendar year, living without fear because we know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, we don't have to have our identity so wrapped up in what other people think of us. We can live without, we can be compelling witnesses wherever we go. Um, so let's get into our, our, our message uh, this week, the passage this week, sorry, about Christ and the new Adam. We're in Romans 5, which we heard Amy uh, read. And this is a great Advent passage because it talks all about sin and specifically the sin of humanity. And Paul says here that we are all in Adam. The Hebrew word for Adam specifically means all of mankind or humankind. Paul says that sin has come into this world through this one man, Adam, and that salvation has come to us through one man, Jesus. So the question is, what does that really mean? Like, what does that really mean? This is like the middle part of Romans is the, like, there's a lot in Romans. This middle part of Romans is probably the most important and least preached about part of the book of Romans. So I'm going to try to unpack it for you. About 10 years ago, someone in the church came over to our house to meet with me and Amy over lunch to discuss our statement of faith. I love those conversations. They happen rarely. I love that. But they were really troubled by the part that talked about sinful humanity and about how sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. They wanted to know whether Genesis chapters 1 through 3 in, particularly are, in particular are real. He, this, this man felt like these stories, as beautiful as they are, were made up to help us make sense of the world, and that science has since contradicted much of this. And as we got deeper in the, into the conversation, I learned that this is his real question. How can we be declared guilty for something Adam did thousands of years ago? It's a good question, right? How can you be judged for something someone else did that you never met? Like that's the definition of not fair, right? right? Because secular culture today, which is predominant culture, teaches me that I am accountable to nobody but myself. As long as I'm not hurting someone else, I can do whatever I desire. In fact, my own fulfillment and happiness should be the main objective of my life. That's why we celebrate in our culture today when anybody puts themselves first. It's like, yeah, that's great. You needed to do that. Yeah, good job, right? And it's true because everybody's overworked and people need to take care of themselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's, it's, taking care of your soul and self is biblical. But it's wrapped in this broader culture where it's like the end goal, like is me and my own desires and happiness. And it's interesting because there's a hint of truth to this. Devil disguises himself as an angel of light. It's true that God desires uh, you to have freedom of thought and freedom of religion for you to choose yourself who you're going to serve. God doesn't force any of us to follow him. That's why we even celebrate in our country and across the world countries that can freely worship. It's easy to take that for granted. 
And so we celebrate, in a sense, our autonomy to make our own decisions. God gave us that freedom. That's a good thing. But the other part of that truth, where our, our desires and our fulfillment becomes the end game, that's where it begins to seep into to heresy. And so what is it about Adam's sin that is related to our condition still to this day? And so let's walk through, through the, this passage. And my prayer is that this passage will help better prepare us for the coming of God. And so may God open the eyes of our hearts to be able to have the revelation to see him for who he really is. Verse 12, I'm reading out of the NLT because this, this passage, um, it's just, it just it at least helped me to read a more free translation, the NLT. Um, and so he just describes it really well. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone Sinned. So Paul here summarizes the three stages of a man's life before Christ. There's sin, there's death, and then there's universal death. And each of these things points back to Adam, who represents sinful humanity. And the relationship between sin and death here is that sin, I mean, excuse me, that death is the penalty for sin. That's an important thing for you to to catch today that death is the penalty for sin. And so what Paul does in the next few verses from verses 13 to 17 is he, he deals with kind of like a sidebar where he's dealing with the potential objection before finishing his main thought in verses 18 and 19. If you have the New King James Version, 13 to 17 are in parentheses. And he's thinking about those who would say, but what about people who lived before Moses, before the law was given? How can they be guilty? And he responds in verse 13, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. In other words, he's saying it's not like Moses came around and introduced the law and then people started sinning. People were sinning from the beginning. The law just exposed the sin that was already there, but had just not explicitly been written down. And so how do we know that people were sinning from the beginning? Verse 14, still everyone died, right? Death is the result of sin. Everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not uh, disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. And so this is what Jesus came to undo, the sting of death. That's so core to us understanding Advent, to us understanding Easter, these times of year, these high holidays, is that Jesus came to undo the sting of death. Verse, second part of verse 14. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. Paul's using a metaphor in Adam to help point us to Christ. Adam represents sinful humanity. His name in Hebrew actually means like from the ground or from the soil. And he, Adam uh, then comes to represent sinful humanity. Not just created humanity, but sinful huma humanity. And in contrast, Christ comes to represent the new humanity. And we see in our image for this week that Christina in our church drew that the Christ child is, being, is descending from from heaven. Jesus is coming from heaven and hovering over the desert dust, right? We come from the dirt and from the dust. 
But Jesus comes from heaven, right? You came from heaven to earth to show the way. What's that old song? From the cross to the grave. My, yeah. Um, and what we see Paul doing here is he's comparing and contrasting Adam with Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. He, he's saying before you look to Adam as the representative of all of humanity, but now you are to look to Christ who is the new and better Adam. He says it this way in Colossians 1, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You know, one of the things that we see over and over this pattern in the Bible is that when one man, fall, when, when one man falls and fails to accomplish God's purposes, God raises up another man in his place. So, so Joshua replaces Moses. And David replaces Saul. And Elisha replaces Elijah. And so the question the hearers are wondering is, who can take the place of Adam? Who could be competent enough to undo the effects of Adam's fall and inaugurate the new humanity? And the Bible, and really the history of the world, knows only one man. The son of man. A man of Sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, who was the firstborn over all creation, who through what he accomplishes here on earth becomes the new Adam, the second Adam. And instead of bringing death, he brings life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. It's sort of a reprise of Romans 5. He says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. There's similarities between Adam and Christ, and there's dissimilarities. And in Romans 5, Paul only highlights one similarity. And the one similarity is that everyone has been affected by this one man's deed, by Adam's deed and by Christ's deed, that everyone has been affected. But then he goes on to mostly highlight the differences between Adam and Christ. And so Romans 5.15 uh, says this, but there is a great difference, somebody say difference, between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many, but even greater. I love it when, in, in, in scripture when it's like even greater, even more so. How, or uh, what, what is the, in, in Rome, uh, Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount about do, do not worry. How much more? You look at the lilies of the valley. How much more will God clothe those, right? So this is one of those transitions. He says, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. The first great difference that Paul is highlighting here is the aim of the deed. This is the motive of the deed. See, Adam knew the way he should walk. God gave him clear instructions of what he should do and not do in Genesis 2. And yet Adam deviated from it. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just don't eat from that one tree. And that's the tree that Adam ate from. And that's the thing about sin nature, the sinful nature, right? If I tell my kids, as I did this last week, you can eat anything in the house when I'm gone. 
like Amy baked some holiday cookies. There's some like chocolate covered almonds from Costco. There's like all these different things. The only thing I don't want you to eat is my chocolate bunt cake. I'm going out of town. That's the one thing I don't want you to eat. You can focus on anything else. You can have anything else. They will complain until they can get that, that cake, which they actually did. So I lost. Um, <laughs> But the aim, the aim of Adam's deed is that he wanted to go his own way. That's why he did it. He thought he knew best. And that's in contrast to Christ's deed. The aim of his deed was to glorify his father, to lay down his life, to fulfill the mission that God had given to him. Listen to this. The aim of Adam's deed was self-will. But the aim of Christ's deed is self-sacrifice. Big contrast, right? Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Adam and Christ have very different aims. The aim of Jesus is to die in order for life to come, right? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed, right? The aim of Adam's deed is to place humanity at the center of the story to say that we think we know what is best. And the result of that is death. And if we had time, I could go through so many examples throughout history or even today of how we have replicated man's self-will over God's will with devastating results. One example is the enlightenment, where we have tried to solve every problem through reason and the scientific method. And how this, this expectation of continual progress has come to dominate Western thought, where we have now made it about us, and we have failed to treat the chief problem of man, which is our fallen humanity. And so despite record-level technological and economic breakthrough in our lifetime, we, we still have lived through in the last century, in the 20th century, the deadliest century in human history in terms of the number of lives lost in war, despite our progress, right? The, the aim of Adam's deed was self-will as it is for us today, and yet the aim of Christ's deed is self-sacrifice. He was the one, Jesus was the one, when faced with temptation in another garden, didn't succumb to that temptation. He acknowledged that the Spirit was willing but the flesh was weak, and yet he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. So the first one is the, the difference is the aim of the deed. The second one is the aftermath of the deed. The aftermath is the result of the deed. And Paul spells it out clearly here. He says, verse 16, and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads, us, leads to our being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. This word one appears 12 times in our passage today. It continues, verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, and here it is again, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Such a contrast between condemnation and justification, between life 
and death. The sin of Adam brought condemnation. The work of Christ brings justification. Adam's sin brings the reign of death, but Christ's sacrifice brings the reign of life. And Paul finishes in verse 18 and 19. He says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will become righteous. Isn't that amazing? The differences between the aim of the deeds, right? Adam asserted himself. Christ sacrificed himself. The aftermath of the deed. Adam's brought condemnation and death. Christ brings justification and life. And this is so important for us to understand because we are in a fight against sin, the world, and the devil. And Advent reminds us of this. Adam reminds us of this. Adam reminds us that there is a devil. And Advent reminds us that his days are numbered. He's about to lose. Why? Because Christ has come and Christ is coming again. And so this season of Advent is so important because we tend to write ourselves into the center of the story. Right? We do this on a weekly basis, which is why it's so important, sacrificial, but important for us to come together in worship each week. Many of you made many sacrifices just to get here this morning. But it's so important because it reminds each of us as we begin this week of what Christ has done. That Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ is coming again. And because at, by the end of the week, I don't know about you, by the, by the end of the week, I'm too often anxious, exhausted, and feeling lonely. And I can get disoriented in those feelings, and I can start thinking that if more of life revolved around me and my needs, then I would be fulfilled. But when I encounter Christ once again, I am reminded that he found his life by losing his life. And so I don't just need Sunday to reorient myself each week. I need Advent to reorient me each year. Why? Because I can get all up in my feelings and into my subjective analysis. And I need to be reminded that Christ has come and that Christ is coming again. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood and the situations that we can see in our life. We wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, as it says in Ephesians 2, as we just talked about in October. And, and, and in my struggle, I can think that it's all up to me and my effort. Like when things get hard and I get tired, I can just think I need to try harder. I love how Fleming Rutledge, who Jensen and I had dinner with um, in New York City, she's 87 years old, hosted us in her home, it was amazing. I love how she says this in her book on Advent. She says this, where faith in mankind comes to an end, the message of Christmas begins. When faith, where faith in mankind comes to an end, the message of Christmas begins. And the reason we can miss this message of Advent, this message of, of Christmas, is because we are too caught up in our own story to notice. 
And our temptation is just to think that if we can slow down long enough, if we can just get some rest, if we can just take a walk, if we can just have another drink, if we can just recenter ourselves, if we could just learn some better parenting advice, um, if we could just live in a better house or uh, go to a better restaurant or have more engaging experiences as we travel abroad, then we'll be fulfilled. But Adam's story teaches us that the problem that we're trying to address is actually much deeper. The problem is with our our nature. It's actually with our orientation. We are oriented towards self rather than towards God. And it's not just something, it's not just some people that have this self-orientation. Paul says a couple chapters before in chapter 3 that everybody has this self-orientation. He says it this way, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And so the problem with Adam is actually the problem with humanity. You could just insert anybody else's name throughout history other than Jesus, and you can say we were in that sinful nature. You know, the truth of the matter is that if we don't get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, then we will be deceived into thinking that salvation comes through our own effort, which is the exact opposite message of Advent. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his uh, classic book, Mere Christianity. He says this, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a rebel. <laughs> wow, way to break the ice, right? right? See, see, see you're, you're a rebel. You're a rebel who was made in the image of God. You are a rebel who was created for intimacy with God, created with a deep capacity to love and to be loved. But if you don't acknowledge that you're a rebel, then what you will do is you'll spend the rest of your life externalizing sin, always making it about the other race, the other political party, and the other nationality. But as Alexander, and I hope I get his last name right, Solzhenitsyn, Solzul Nietzsche famously says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If only it were so simple that we could just separate everybody into two groups. That is the, the temptation throughout all of history, is if we can just separate everybody into two groups, good group, evil group, then we could destroy them and protect ourselves. But the line between good and evil doesn't run through the, or cut through the lines that we draw between people. It cuts through the heart of every human being. That's the point Paul makes on the famous Roman road. At the end of chapter 3, he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the bad news is that we're constantly orienting ourselves around self instead of around God, and it's li- we're literally killing ourselves. But the good news that I have come to share with you today is that God has provided a way out. There is a new and greater Adam, and his name is Jesus. For if many people died through the sin of one man, how much more? Did God's grace come to us through the greater man? If death came to us through this one man, Adam, how much more will life come to us who receive this free gift of grace in Jesus Christ? 
It's much easier to avoid the talk of, of death and judgment and heaven and hell. It's actually easier to say, oh, this story of Adam is just a made up one. It's not fair to be judged for somebody else's sin. And yet each time we sin, we confirm that we are part of Adam's heritage, that we have the same sinful nature in us. And this is so important for us to understand today about our sin, that we do not just sin, but that we are sinners. That we don't just sin, because when I'm just focused on my sin, I'm focused like horizontally how I compare with other people. But when we come into worship and we sit under the word of God, when we, when we worship together through song, when we read the scripture, we, we realize actually that it's not a horizontal comparison, that actually what we should be comparing ourselves is to God. And so then the question becomes, there's this great contrast between us and our sinful humanity and, and who God is, and we're made in his image, we're made in his likeness, and so there's a desire, there's a longing for eternity that he's put in our hearts. We're saying, who will close this divide? Jesus saves us from judgment, but he doesn't save us without judgment. It's not fairness that we need. We need fairness if what we're doing is comparing ourselves to others. It's not fairness we need. What we need is mercy. We need the mercy of God. And it says in Galatians that Christ became a curse for us. Fleming says this in her book, and I'll, I'm coming in for a landing here. She says this, the sacrifice of Jesus our Lord is this. He has gone into the day of judgment utterly alone, separated from the Father, taking the sentence of condemnation upon himself. And that means that he's being judged in our place. And as Christ hangs upon the cross, he himself is absorbing the final judgment of God upon every form of evil, including the evil that is lodged in every human heart. Jesus was judged for us so that we can receive mercy. And what's so glorious when you think about this is the timing. It's the timing of Jesus' action. Paul says this a couple of verses earlier, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates, some of you know this scripture, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The timing is what's glorious. And I just got overcome with emotion as I was studying this text this week because I had the revelation that, that before Paul wrote this in Revelation 5, and he had this revelation of what Christ had done through his death on the cross, I was reminded that before Christ died for us, the Christ came for us. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the incarnation. That while we were still sinners, while you were still a sinner, Christ came for you. Way before he died for you, he came for you. He was thinking about you. And so let's turn our hearts to the Lord as we prepare, reflect on his first coming and prepare for his second coming, amen? I want to invite you all to stand as our worship team comes. I just want to pray for somebody today, just with every head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to pray for somebody today that you would just say, I'm not sure today whether I am in Christ. 
The Bible teaches us a very important lesson today that we are all in Adam by birth. We all have this sinful nature by birth, but the Bible also teaches us that we are, that we're not all in Christ, that we're not in Christ by birth, we're in Christ by faith. Paul says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in the next verse that through him we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. So peace and grace are not given to those who are in Adam. Peace and grace are given to those who are in Christ. And I want you to know today that you can have assurance that you are in Christ, that you are safe with him forever, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. The promise was given through the angel to Joseph that Mary would give birth to a son and he would be given the name Jesus for he would save the people from their sins. He would come to do battle with Satan and he would begin be given the name Emmanuel as well from Isaiah 7, 14. God with us, not God far off, but a merciful God who comes from heaven to earth, who sends the advocate, the counselor to, to be with us in our fight against the world, the devil, and the flesh. And so we thank you, God, that today we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear uh, the final judgment we can face it with confidence because you've already faced it for us. And so if you're here today and you say, I, I don't have confidence that I am in Christ. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with going to church. I'm cool talking about faith. I even pray here and there. But I don't have confidence that I am in Christ, that I can face that final day of judgment with confidence. I want to pray for you right now. I want to invite you just to repeat this prayer after me wherever you are. Just say, thank you, God, for speaking to me today. I acknowledge my sin before you, that I am in Adam, that I don't just sin, but I have a sin nature. And I believe that you came for me I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose for me and for this world. I receive your Holy Spirit. I receive your assurance and confidence that I can face death without fear. I pray in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. And everybody together said,